0: uh so glad you could join me mr jk
1: (laughs) so so thankful that you would take the time to talk with me about a variety of different things i appreciate it so much
0: oh you Uh, bet well i was uh looking at your uh very prolific profile and uh (laughs) you are indeed an experienced gentleman so uh, i am a little bit humbled and uh can say, you know, maybe a little intimidated as well from, from oh, the sheer volume. like
1: that, dude. <laughs> don't like that with me at all. I'm, I'm just a guy who who works hard. That's all I do, and I got very lucky in a lot of what I do, so that's you, all I can say. i I'm will very blessed.
0: I will say you definitely work hard, and you have great taste in movies because uh, you, looking at uh, the people you've interviewed and such, I'm like, I recognize those names. I've talked to those people. I know those guys. That, it's a nice... Uh, <laughs>
1: yeah it is yeah it is well it's been it's been great and you know it's so funny mark mm. i plan on tonight after we get off i'm gonna go down my SoundCloud with the the i, I think it's like a thousand five that i have listed under i'm gonna calculate mm. all the hours tonight wow so, yeah <laughs> so it's been fun well you know what doing interviews like this yeah and for for um digging into the darkness and then touching on more of the stuff that i've done over the years has really kind of opened up a lot of curiosity on things that I haven't even really touched on in a while, because if you look at my uh, the aspect of the podcast, the show, it's really kind of been reduced down to a couple of months now. Sure. I've been so busy with so many other things because so many other doors opened up, thankfully.
0: And and that's what's great. And, you know, uh, you've got a venue like the Internet and uh, you get these opportunities that you probably wouldn't have gotten like, you know, 10, 10, even 10 years ago, 15 years ago uh yeah that, that you do now you know it, people are approachable in that and I will say you've got fantastic taste in uh music I see your Miles Davis kind of blue yeah. album behind you so uh
1: <laughs> yes it is Miles Davis and then um I've been a big swing fan in fact the decade before it started horror happens it was all swing music for me swing, oh nice guys jump blues and rockabilly and uh, the Big Bad Voo Daddies and all that were huge as part of that movement. And I'm working currently on a doc now about that movement. Oh, nice. So Yeah. So I'm kind of getting out of the horror realm a lot, starting hopefully this summer. Actually, this spring, when I go back to my second semester of university in their film program, and I'm working strictly on doc stuff this semester with cinematography and audio design and workshop and i'm going to be working on stuff and hopefully doing a fan funding and jumping on the road in the springtime to go uh do tangible interviews and that 45 right there mm-hmm. that's signed by sid haig oh when nice he was in his band as a teenager as the drummer so it was i wanted to put something up there to cover <laughs> up the nail and i'm like that's perfect for it yeah.
0: that, that is perfect uh yeah especially for sid haig the the horror horror link to it and and right yeah uh, yeah, yeah, I'm a big music guy too. Uh, you know, music soundtracks and that, especially, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a junkie on some of that stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so, uh, like, like horror too, uh, you know, which is, you know, I, I love all the people you've talked to and everything and the horror aspect, um, in the genre. And I, I thought it was very interesting when I read about this series, which is, you know, digging into the darkness here. Right uh focused you know a whole series uh focused on horror because i think horror gets a bad rap i what do you think of the genre i mean because oh it's horror whatever but there's a lot of great things in horror i think if people paid attention is that what you're trying to focus on a bit with the series uh why don't you tell folks a little bit about it
1: well it's so interesting mark and and Mm. again thank you for having me on talking digging into the darkness and when I look at horror now as someone who's been a fan all of my life, started off with films like Faces of Death and mm-hmm. Friday the 13th and Halloween and Evil Dead during that, you know, late seventies, more and more like films from that period, but me from mid eighties, early nineties, right. as mm-hmm. I grew up, cause I'm 44 now um, with it, it. It's so it goes through stages. I mean, horror really has been the black mark for many a decades up until the last 20, 25 years, where all of a sudden it became more of an actor's medium where they could go on TV or go and film and get performances and get characters and get roles where they could really have meat on the bone for what they're doing. And even, you know, horror is so fluid, Mark, that thrillers, dark dramas, uh, you know, a, a wide range of different features within horror can really kind of fall in that category. So it really gave actors an opportunity. And it went from being a black mark on your resume and something you did to break into the industry or something you did like porn yeah. to turning into something that was very well recognized and film a film like silence of the lambs was really mm-hmm. ushered in that movement you know even though it's not considered a horror film by the academy it very much is a horror film and then films surrounding that that led into mm-hmm. the aspect of horror really going from a black mark to more of a polished product where directors and actors and writers and everyone could come together and then you have the literary aspect and and the composing aspect and all these talents coming together but with the series that is something actually um i had thought about when i assembled this and mm-hmm. moncler film and again monclerfilm.org where you can register for the series digging into darkness i can't believe it's less than three weeks now from the time that we're talking here right now this is being recorded but moncler film really had never done anything horror wise i mean they, they'd shown some films but it really took someone who was very ingrained in the genre to kind of bring it to their attention and then for them to finally say okay we'll give it a try and mark please understand that with this series just like any other horror project or festival or convention if there's not support behind it just like horror before it kind of disappears it goes away mm-hmm. and that's something that people don't tend to that people tend to forget. Is that you know you need to support these things. You know, independent horror is great, but it takes a budget, it takes a lot of people, it takes a village to be able to make these kind of projects. It's not saying just thrown together in your backyard. Well, maybe maybe a small percentage thrown together in your backyard like like the short film I just did, but you know, it takes a lot of work to be able to bring it together. And with digging into the darkness, it really is something that I wanted to shine a light in those dark corners with a lot of the newer filmmakers. I tried to get some more of the classics on, Mm -hmm. uh, but Netflix, which, you know, all the films are streaming on Netflix currently, there really isn't a whole lot of films that are really available for the people out there to go ahead and see. It's gone to Shudder. It's gone to a lot of the individual uh, uh, channels and platforms on Roku. You know, um, Netflix really doesn't do it. They did that at the beginning, Mm -hmm. but now they really don't. So it had to be more of a fresh, independent faces, but yet those are influenced by a lot of the filmmakers and a lot of the horror that was really shunned that is now embraced by much of the world, much of the film community and much of the artistic community.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's great to see some of that respect and, and, you've got a great list here uh, i've i've actually only seen maybe one or two of these films unfortunately uh but i just looking at the names in that that you picked you know dark light what uh 1922 right. black coat's daughter uh freaks and one uh br right. um you know that's just a great representation uh but yeah i i've always loved horror my my parents my dad i mean i grew up on it i remember eating chicken. It sounds weird, but I remember <laughs> eating chicken and watching Hellraiser, the first Hellraiser. You <laughs> you know, And we're the same age. I'm only a year older. Right. So, uh, you know, I've always joked with people that, you know, the 80s was a weird time for us because our parents wa- let us watch films we probably shouldn't have watched at the age right. we watched them at. But at the same time, up until, yeah, uh, you know, recent It's always been, oh, you like horror. Oh, that's, oh, you know, (laughs) it's like, you know, and it's just great that you've got this series because now we have films like, I mean, some people will debate it, but hereditary. uh, And some people think there's performances in there that should have been recognized by the Academy. There's some other horror. Yeah, Tony Collette was fan. Fantastic in that film, you know, she's
1: a wonderful actress and a talent, and that's something that she's really cut her her teeth on Mm -hmm. since Muriel's wedding way back in the uh late 90s on Miramax, I believe. When she came over, she's cut her teeth on a lot of horror. And you know, is the next generation of filmmakers, like an Ari Aster, for example, is someone who could lead us to that bridge where it's more than just a fantastical uh, portrait. Like, um, like the shape of water, mm-hmm. what Del Toro did, but it's more like Jordan Peele and Ari Astor, those minds who are so ingrained in the genre and allowing people like Tony Collette to be able to cultivate those performances.
0: And one of the things I love is the fact their influences, because there's always been a debate. I mean, well, you're you know deep in social media, there's all the horror groups now and major debates about you know, uh, is it a ripoff versus homage? Right um and do you go will you go into that a little bit with some of these films on maybe pointing out the influences but say they're not ripping it off they're influenced
1: (laughs) right well you you know what everything that you see as a part of digging into the darkness whether it's dark light stephen king's 1922 1br freaks or the black coat's daughter you know all these filmmakers drew influence from uh, the, the range of minds over the last 50 years. I mean, you look at something like 1BR. I Have you seen Roman Polanski's The Tenant?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, it's, yeah. you know, there there is the elements of that kind of film there. The claustrophobia, the aspect of not knowing what's around you, feeling uncomfortable, unsure of, of who you can trust and who you can't trust. That's a part of this community. When you look at Stephen King's 1922, you just look down his laundry list of complex characters and conflicts within a relationship. And that goes back to the dawn of time, how a marriage can fall apart and turn into such a toxic environment, even mm-hmm. in the age that it is set in. And then you look at Freaks, where it's a balance of superheroes and horror and sci-fi. And I mean, now more than ever, you know, you see so many superhero films, Mark, mm-hmm. that are, are, are Marvel and DC. And I love Marvel and DC. I absolutely love it. But then you have films like Chronicle and, Bra- and uh, Brightburn, yes. ones like that where all of a sudden you see the dark side of these superpowers. Injustice. DC's Injustice with Superman, you know, finally giving into that darkness because something is taken away from him that's so uh, innate in his, uh, what he feels to be humanity, his disguise mm-hmm. versus his, his natural instincts. You know, you look at that with Freaks and, and that balance of, of powers for personal reasons instead of doing the right thing. And then the Black Coat's daughter. I mean, Oz Perkins is another one, like Ari Aster, like mm-hmm. Jordan Peele who really just, it's so moody and it's so uh, emotional and it's so, you, from the moment you're there, the sound mix and the, the lighting and mm-hmm. the performances and the pace and the dread. I mean, there's so much involved with it. And I'm so happy that producer Adrian Biddle is going to be coming on March 7th, uh, the third week of the five we're doing for Digging in the Darkness. And she has worked not only with Oz Perkins, but Brian Bertino. Who's the strangers, right. the monster, you know, the dark and the wicked just recently. And, you know, it's all this independent, moody horror with these really, um, I'll use the word complex characters again, because they're dealing with so much emotions and they're dealing with, you know, circumstances that put them where horror happens. And then you have something like Dark Light, which is on the opposite end of the spectrum where it's a creature movie. Mm-hmm. It's a creature movie wrapped in the aspect of a dysfunctional marriage and parenting and it's really incredible how padre Reynolds, is going to kick us off on february 21st how he designed a creature his what he wanted to be there the simplicity of it yet having that monster how it was brought to life what he was able to do with his budget i mean all these things are influences that came from generations before it, very few horror films mark have an originality anymore yeah. there there's really it's very hard to that's why something like jordan peel is doing isn't even really original it's been around forever. It's just in a different, different generation for it to appreciate. And so yeah, we will address the influences, the originalities, you know, where things were pulled from. Because if we didn't address that, we wouldn't be true to the filmmaker's vision. And, and the great thing about it, Mark, is it's not just me sitting here, like talking to you. Sure. I mean, those who have registered, those who are going to register and are going to be a part of it, For the five weeks, you're going to be able to ask these questions screen to screen. It's Mm. a virtual uh, event for five weeks, one hour every Sunday night, 7 p.m. East Coast time, 4 p.m. West Coast time, and you'll be able to sit there for the 60 minutes and ask questions in a forum yourself about filmmaking, about the influences, about being fans. So there will be more than just me trying to dig into the darkness of these films.
0: Nice. Yeah, Jay, I was I when I saw that it was interactive. I think that's interesting because you get that stigma with horror, uh, you know, and then people meet these filmmakers because right. I mean I fell in love with people, yeah. Exactly. You know, I, I fell in love. I've always loved horror, but I wasn't really that deep into indie horror till my good friend Glenn said, hey, there's a horror uh, festival at Oshkosh Horror Film Festival. It was the right. second year uh, run by John Pata of, of Dead Weight and that, And he's like, I
1: love John. John is the man. John was one of my all time favorite guests on Horror Happens when he came on to talk pity and he yeah. came on to talk dead weight. And later on the stylist, he is one of the true bright spots in the genre such a talented editor and such a charismatic figure that just loves life and he is a a treasure
0: he's got so much energy i just love his energy you just be around him and you're like let's make something because you just talk to him and he's just he's just on that level um you know uh and pity yeah uh pity was a solid too but once i got his, his festival i got to meet indie filmmakers and i fell in love with this genre seeing what people could do with very little and seeing that it's people with a passion i mean most and i'm not going to say all but most of these indie filmmakers i think people think oh they're not going to make any money on that i'm like that's not exactly. why they're making these exactly.
1: films <laughs> exactly it's a passion for sure and you know what that's something mark that i'm glad that you bring up because many fans are more fixated with the nostalgia factor of horror, Mm -hmm. the collecting factor of horror, and they forget about the names that are coming up. And, you know, if you look at my scratching the surface with horror on Horror Horror Happens Radio, on SoundCloud, you know, the majority of my work is with the independent filmmakers of this generation, the last 10, 15, 20 years. I love the legends. I did the Masters of Horror show where I had Mick Garrison, Joe Dante, and you know and uh, and John McNaughton and a whole bunch of others on there, but it's more of the modern filmmakers and cr- uh, creators that I love to talk to because not only are you drawing what we've talked about already with the influences, but you're finding out how the technology works into their mm-hmm. project. You're finding out the challenges, you're uh, you're talking about the personal journey, what was not on the page that these these actors brought. There's so much to the modern film festivals, Mark, and I'm glad you bring up John's event, but film festivals every year, and you know, not so much with COVID time, but even virtual ones, you need to attend mm-hmm. because it's a business at the forefront and there's a lot of people who wanna get it out there who are not doing it for the dollar, they're doing it for the dedication, they're doing it for the insanity and more.
0: Yeah, and John ran the fest for a number of years and then he tapered off to to focus on the filmmaking and then it was picked up by uh uh Paul and the Time Community Theater and they they turned it into another film festival which was a great tradition. Um you know, I've been part of a number of festivals too, down Madison Horror Fest and and Rich Peterson and getting into horror hosts and all of that and it's just an interesting community, but I think, you know, people who aren't really into it think it's just a bunch of weird, oh, you like watching people die, you know, you're getting, and yeah, sure. You've got those fringe people, but most of us are people who just enjoy horror, enjoy the art that is actually put into them.
1: Exactly. Exactly. You know, you're right. Yeah.
0: And you recognize that. And other people, if they actually sat down and paid attention, it's like, yeah, you, you might dig on, you know, you might slam horror, but, sit down and watch say three or four alfred hitchcock films right and then see how he influenced so many modern filmmakers who aren't horror fans but still are filmmakers how many of the big names spielberg and even you know tarantino and all these guys you look at the film stuff that they do and you're like oh that's from alfred hitchcock (laughs) And, and you're right
1: in what you're saying and and you know, it's so interesting how the 70s and 80s really influenced the perception of horror, again, being the black mark, because a lot of the stuff that came out during that era was really pushed against the religious movement. Mm-hmm. The aspect of, of the gore and the violence and the desensitation, uh desanitation, excuse me, that comes along with it. And when you look at it now, there is a stigma that's carried with it. I mean- Mark, there's there's educators over the, the last decade that were fired from their jobs because they introduced any sort of horror into it. Now, don't get me wrong, you got to use common sense in, in well, what yeah. you do here, you know, <laughs> and you want to make sure you understand. And we've all you know, we've all been overzealous before when it comes to horror, but you have to understand that when you look at this, it truly is an art form. That's something for me, that's why I had stayed so long with it, because I love the art of what they're able to do in all these levels with horror films. And with Digging in Darkness, again, this, this is cinema. Mm-hmm. This isn't a splatter fest. If I go down the list of all these films, I guarantee you there's not a whole lot of splatter on any of them. You know, there's effects, there's visual effects, practical effects, there's some blood. But overall, it's character-driven. It's story-driven. Mm-hmm. And that's what horror has really fallen into, but it's also pushed back against and, and kind of, shunned because people don't think of it first like that they think of it as oh it's a gore fest i don't want to deal with the gore fest i already have to deal with enough crap that's on the news and in my life and i don't want nightmares <laughs> but i tell you what Tell you what, if people had watched more sci-fi and horror like The Stand, you would have been ready for COVID. I guarantee you.
0: You <laughs> definitely would be ready for COVID. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and, and is that what kind of went into your criteria? You were looking for more kind of character-driven, atmospheric type of horror films versus just your straight-up throwback slasher or retro slasher? Was that part of your criteria for picking these films?
1: It, it, I'm glad you asked that because you're the first one who's asked me that. And it's always interesting to know what goes into the thinking of putting together a lineup, whether it's a film festival, a convention, a radio show, whatever right. it is, the why you're doing this. And when it comes to this, first and foremost, for me, these are all people, except for, I think, Adam Stein's the only one that I've interviewed previous. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to make sure I had a proven lineup going in and a lineup I knew would, put, would be both educational and entertaining as a part of the series. Because, you know, Mark, I could have come on here tonight and been as dry as a stick and I could have just been moody and standoffish and done all that stuff because I've done so much but that's not who I am but you didn't know that you've only known me from Facebook and that's my point you know with a lot of these guests that you have on you don't know what to expect with them even Mm -hmm. if you've seen them on Facebook well I wanted to make sure for people who are paying money to be a part of this and it's only for the five sessions it's 75 bucks that's 15 dollars a session, that's cheaper than going to a convention or a film festival, and there's none of them around now, (laughs) so use that money to support something in Montclair Film who's a great cinema house in Montclair, New Jersey, because they also need to stay in business as well, so for the Mm -hmm. money you're going to put out there to support Montclair Film and digging into the darkness and horror and cinema, I wanted the lineup I knew would be great, and people I knew, both personally and professionally, but after that, I also wanted to, because I wanted again to get some more of the older films, the more nostalgic mm-hmm. films. And I almost had Evil Dead set up to go with it. But the funny thing about Evil Dead is a lot of the people that I talk to don't use Zoom. And oh. they aren't the technology isn't really there. And it's a shame because with someone like uh like the mind, Stephen Martin behind Hail to the Deadites, you know, I think they used. Skype, once mm-hmm. in it, everything else was tangible interviews, which I love tangible interviews. I do 95%, 99% are phone interviews. I'm more old school when it comes to technology rather than Zoom, so I can appreciate that. So it ended up being more of the indie names and I wanted films that were across the board with horror, the fluid mm-hmm. aspect of it. One VR is, is an interesting kind of community kind of film. It, you know, and I say that because I don't want to give too much away on it. But it's a a claustrophobic uh cat and mouse kind of community thriller you know freaks is superhero hybrid with horror and sci-fi black coat's daughter is a very dread-filled, moody dark drama um stephen king's 1922 is a period piece but it's stephen king and the aspect of dark light is more of a creature feature at the heart of it so i wanted an eclectic lineup to go for this season of digging into the darkness. And if this goes well, and we're able to get back into the theater, Mark, or we have another virtual season after this one, it'll the lineup will probably be different, but those criterias won't change because I want to be able to have variety for people to fully immerse themselves in horror.
0: And, and set up expectations too, possibly for new people just being introduced right. to the genre, because you're right. In the news, and especially in the indie community, well, we've mentioned there are gems. There are also a lot who are trying. I feel a little too hard to be throwback film. You know, I agree. Some of them work. Like I just watched Psycho Gorman, and it was hilarious. I loved. Even great. Yes. Oh my lord, I loved Psycho Gorman. You know, I I've loved a few of those retro ones, and some of them I'm just like, you're pushing it a little. You know, and those are the ones. <laughs> Though that are usually the most vocal, and so those are the ones people see and are like, "Oh, that's." It's like, yeah, right. but but have you watched this? And we're like, "Well, no, I watched I have to this." Watch
1: Trick or treat. <laughs> <How do you laughs> think about that. Throwback
0: or, to horror. Yeah. Gags. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, John. I I drove I drove an hour and a half to the Green Bay, Wisconsin premiere of Gags, and uh, it it was worth every. Every mile, wow. uh, definitely. Um, such a great film, and especially for me because found footage. I always say found footage for me is a hard sell, uh, right. because it, I'm one of the few, I think, horror fans that didn't quite care for uh Blair Witch, the original. I, I thought it was okay, but you know, found footage too. I think if done right, it's very creative. Uh, and but some people there's so much out there because it's a fairly easy genre to to shoot right. that people see a lot of the not so great stuff and so they're turned off by it and i you know that's what i think is kind of tough is uh bringing new people in and and convincing them no no this one's a good one. <laughs> you know and looking at and looking at yeah. looking at your lineup it, i feel that's kind of like what you're trying to do here is it as well as kind of bring new people in and go no look it there's good stuff here as well.
1: <laughs> exactly. And you're right about saying that because, and I'll, I'll use Stephen King's 1922 for an example. You know, Stephen King had his huge push in the 80s and in the 90s with the miniseries and, and in between, because, uh, you know, some of the stuff was scattered for a while in the 70s and we moved mm-hmm. forward. Well, he's got such a renaissance again in the last decade with a lot of his works being adapted and readapted for TV, for film, and and for book and one of the great things about Stephen King is you know his works are readily available for short films. Yeah, you can you know it's pretty easy to go ahead and license some of his stuff to make short films uh, pertain to it or adapt it for short films. But after a while, even Stephen King, you sit back and you scratch your head and say, "Do I need another Stephen King film in my life? Do I need to see?" Because I was not a big fan of the remake of it. Mm-hmm. I, I would just wasn't a fan of it. I, I thought the second part was better than the first part. I didn't hate the film. I, I liked it. I watched it a couple of times. I gave it its respect. But there's nothing like Tim Curry as Pennywise popping up out of that shower grate and his personality he puts to it instead of just being a terrifying monster. And that's mm-hmm. something that I think people fall back into a lot, Mark, is that a lot of them are carbon copies. Mm-hmm. They're carbon copies of each other with little variations, little changes, you know, and, and you don't want to fault the filmmaker for doing it because there's a number of reasons why that film came to be the way it is or that TV show or that short film came the way it is. But you got to think outside the box on what to do, like found footage. I used to say the short film for my first semester back of the film program called Within a, uh, Within the Frame. It's it's uh, hopefully going to be playing festivals. And you talk about found footage and found footage, people first thing comes to mind, oh, it's videotape. Oh, it's just looking at videotapes. <laughs> found footage is more than that oh yeah i did my short and i used actual polaroids as part of it the polaroids have found footage found events on it so it's a different way of looking at it and for those who are willing to do it even if it falls under the same umbrella and one br is a great example there's been plenty of films about a woman that's inside a community but what david marmer does is he this is an exceptionally personal film it's surrounded in los angeles and why there are similarities to some other films, which I won't name, he does find his own kind of unique fingerprint mm-hmm. with the way that this that the community is broken up. With the aspect of, the, you know, pushing that envelope with some of the tortures, going about it with the way of uh, how, he, he, how he kind of maneuvers isolation. So there's a lot of different ways you can do it, but a lot of filmmakers just to get a film out there will say, well, I'm going to make a slasher. Well, what are you going to do for slash? Oh, I'm going to have all these kids. They're going to a cabin and it's going to be this. And this, this guy's going to wear a mask. Oh, he's got a machete. No, he's got a knife. It's like you sit back and you want to give him props for, for going out there and doing it. But after a while, you shake your head. And that's why Dark Light, for example, the creature that Padre Grenolds put together for this, I'll be honest with you, is not the most awe-inspiring creature, but it's original. And it definitely has its own personality And that's something I can't fault Padraig for at all. And I'm very happy he's going to come on to talk about that because it's one of his favorite films he's done. And he's done quite a lot since Mm -hmm. I think going back to 2010 or 11.
0: Yeah. And it's that's what I like about the new horror. And it's why I think all of us horror fans consume so much because, yeah, you do get same. You're like, okay, this is similar to similar. And then you get gems or you get films like The Witch or The Vich, you know, I tell you, I went into the witch and I was just blown away. I know some people are like, "Oh man, I was bored," and I'm like, "I loved that. I fell yeah. in love with that film. One, it was, I love it too. One of them. It's a period piece, which I love. Period horror. I think we really—that's a genre that really could use a lot more—is—is is period horror versus being in the '80s. You know, set in Victorian times, set right. in in the Old West. I love. You know, it was the Burrowers. I loved it, you know, not a phenomenal film, but it was great because it was in the old West. You got a different exactly. voice, a different setting. It wasn't just kids going out, debauchery, death, you know? <laughs> well, you
1: know what though, Mark, even kids going out in debauchery and death, you can find an original spin. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something, I mean, you look over the years and a lot of the filmmakers, yeah, there's plenty of of movies where you absolutely hate the kids. But if you look at something like uh, Tony uh, uh film, um, what's Tony DeCuano's film? I gotta, he's gonna kill me for not remembering. <laughs> but Tony DeCuano's film, it'll come to me in a second, where it's eight final girls and eight slashers. Oh, yeah. And they're put on the battlefield to go at each other. And you don't realize the twists until you're halfway through the film. But they're, you know, it's characters in conflict. Instead of, you know, The descent another uh, another uh, mm-hmm. film like this, where you have a group of women, but the group of women are put into such a situation where it's so tense and it's something that you're willing to invest in. Mm-hmm. And that's something across the board that we don't think about. And the, the, the Witch is a great example of that. You're willing to invest in this family struggle. You're willing to invest in these tropes being used. You're willing to invest in the fact that evil... And all great horror, in my opinion, is where evil wins. Mm-hmm. If it, you, It's never going to turn out good. And the witch is exactly that. And you're willing to invest in what they're able to do. And that's something right there is investment. That's one of the reasons why. And I see hundreds of films a year through film festivals, through the radio program, through Horror Hound, uh, through other programs I'm doing. And I'll tell you something. If I can't invest in it, mm-hmm. then I don't want to be a part of it. And then that's something as you watch it more and more and more, it's very hard to do. And I've had plenty of conversations over the years where I'm not invested in the film at all, but I still talk to them about it. I still want to know their process because I'm invested in what they're doing, even if I'm not invested in the film. But that's one of the reasons why. Another reason why it's so hard to be able to get into the more modern horror or horror in general. Because there's nothing to invest in. That's why Stephen King's properties are being taken up by Netflix because Stephen King writes interesting characters. They're really incredible stories. sometimes they 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 trip over each other, you know, don't mind, you know, mm-hmm. depending on what you're looking at in, when it comes to some of the stories. but it's really interesting content you're willing to invest in,
0: yeah, investment, especially in characters is is always that's the big thing for me. If I can find one character that I can kind of appreciate, right. I, I I'm I'm in, you know, I don't care about anyone else. I, I'm in. And then if they happen to kill that person early, I'm like, good on you. I didn't expect it. You you set it up, you know. And I think I, I like that. Yeah, you're not going to get a whole lot of originality, but if you take a different spin on a trope, you'll pull me in a lot sooner than following the standard cookie cutter formula because right. You know, I think there's still a lot of voices out there, as you've mentioned already, Ari Aster, uh, Jordan Peele. I mean, get out for crying out, you know, the same tropes, the same things we've seen before, but told from a different perspective or a different voice. I think there's many voices out there to tell these stories yet in, in new ways for us to look at them differently.
1: Right. I agree with you, you know. wholeheartedly. And real quick, I'm looking up I'm looking yeah. up, uh Tony's film right now. But one movie that comes to mind, and when Jumanji was remade, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, a lot of board game movies came to be. And, and, you know, and horror even tapped into it. And Game of Death, which was out three, four years ago, I believe it's available right now on, on uh, Amazon Prime. And also Tilt, which was which played mm-hmm. Fantasia uh, three, four years ago. These are two films that took it, and also sequence break, Graham Skipper's film. They took the aspect of the game, whether it was board games or video games, and they threw different spins on it. And that's what you got to do, because you can grab a trope. You can grab the grab the, the subgenre and tropes of, of the slasher and people going upstairs when they should be running down the stairs and, you know, the aspect of of, you know, women and how they're portrayed or going into those dark corners. And you can twist them in the way that you want to. And that's something that is very hard for filmmakers to do nowadays, because a lot of them don't do their homework. And I'll give you a great example. My first semester in the film program at Montclair State, there was a lot of people who fell back on sci-fi and horror for Mm -hmm. their first student short. And I'd say maybe three or four of them actually found an original spin or found a doorway in that that actually interested me. Mm -hmm. Because being someone who's been around it, you start to talk with them and you start to say, well, what about this? What about that? What are you going to do with this? And most of them are just happy to settle on their laurels rather than go forward and try and find something that can be fresh and shake it up.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I think some people fall back on that too, in all honesty, because as we mentioned, many indie filmmakers go into these things, uh, you know, not expecting to make money but there's some that make a film going oh i'm going to get this distributed or whatnot right. so they make the cookie cutter film because distributors so many of them they know are comfortable It'll with make that money right you're, you're, you're make money yes you're gonna get the contract so it they're the distributors are not gonna look for a, a risk taker but then you get films like the final girls which right. was fantastic and i didn't expect it i looked at the trailer and i'm like okay it's kind of a tongue in cheek and then i watched it and i'm like wow this has a whole nother layer that i didn't expect millennial
1: horror my friend (laughs) millennial horror that's what it is now and millennial horror has become that horror now in these cycles where you have and game of death is a great example characters you completely dislike and you're happy to see them get killed off And then you invest in the ones that survive and they build off of, but that initial burst is I don't like these characters. How Mm -hmm. can I do it? The black coat disorder is a great example of characters who you may not necessarily like because of, of the, the emotion, because of the dread, because of the situations they're put in, but they're very relatable characters Mm -hmm. and you're willing to invest in them. So absolutely. That's what you look at when it comes to something like that.
0: Yeah. I, I got a screener a while back uh, for hashtag horror. It was called Um, and that one, it caught me. Now it didn't completely win me over. I thought it was a solid film, but it was like, I'm sitting there going this. I'm not the demographic." 45 year old Mark is not the demograph for hashtag horror. And I think that is something that us horror fans who have grown up through the 80s, the golden age of horror, whatever we tend to forget is that these films were never geared towards us old, old folks. Right.
1: Exactly. Right. And you're right. in what you're saying with it, but generations, and that's one great thing about horror. And I've seen it at conventions. I've seen it with festivals. I've seen it with, with directors who have become fathers. Now that's one of my favorite questions they ask is, and I've asked this to some of the best ones out there, you know, as you become a father, has your perspective on directing horror, the idea of going ahead and selecting your projects has that been affected? Because now you have kids, and you're you have a lineage now that's going to look back at your work. And people like Joe Lynch and, and Darren Bowsman and ones like that. It's so interesting listening to their answers about it and how they've really kind of changed what they do or they've made tweaks to what they do. And then there's some that really haven't at all. And by the yeah. way, the film is the Furies. Totally the, the Furies. There you the go. Furies. Okay. Which is eight final girls and eight uh, slashers that are put into uh, kind of like a battle royale Mm -hmm. setting uh, with it. But when you look at that, you're exactly right. That age, you know, a lot of people don't think about the age, but age is everything Mm -hmm. when it comes to it. It's everything because now, you know, your kids are collecting the stuff. They're watching the movies. Um, You're also collecting a lot of memorabilia. You might have not been able to get a hold of when you were younger. I know. I am. And I know I'm collecting those films. I see the films right behind you right now, Mark. It's, you know, a lot of those films, I mean, 20 years ago, we would have never even thought about having those kind of films, but now we can collect them. You can see the music behind me. You can see the movies next to me. I mean, it's all stuff that I never thought I'd be able to do. So people may not think age, but it's really important though, when it comes to distributors, it's really important to know where these films are going to and who's going to be sweeping them up. What generation of horror is going to be sweeping up and how are they going to connect? Because not every, it's not like fingerprints or I'm sorry, it's like fingerprints. Every film is different and it doesn't all, it's not always the same as it is for the same group of people.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, for me, a lot of the uh, PC, what I call the, uh, the browser horror, you know, we've had like unfriended in that. That's another one where I'm like, eh, okay. But then the younger groups are just eating it up because they relate to that. Whereas... When I was younger, yeah, the camp in the woods related me, to me more because that's what my parents did. We went camping in the w- woods yeah, a exactly
1: lot. Right. yeah, Well, now it's political
0: horror. Yep. It, it's hashtag me too, which has mm-hmm.
1: been another one over the last five years. It's pandemic horror now. It's a lot of different things. Horror cycles based on the world that's spinning around it. It really is. And if you look at events like uh, A Clockwork Orange, some people mm-hmm. consider horror films, some people don't but you have the idea of, of war. Look at The Last House on the left. Yeah. You had the Vietnam War going on. I, I um, uh, David Hess, how are you going to make a peace, loving film when you have war going on around you and right. all the imagery? I mean, it's really incredible to see the events that really kind of harness our horror. And things go through cycles. There might be the same tropes and same subgenres of horror, Mark, but guess what? You know, there's different events that fuel what's going on. In fact, uh, my, my short was fueled by an urban legend. It was an urban legend here in Northwest New Jersey that I've always been a fan of and it gave me a chance to be able to do it in a COVID time. So something like war and urban legends in a state in the Northeast influenced something like me. You look down the lineup for Digging Into Darkness, Creatures for Dark Light, Stephen King's 1922, the aspect of of uh, the Dust Bowl and, mm-hmm. and the aspect of, uh, of a toxic marriage, the Black Coat's Daughter, the idea of isolation, and two students coming together on a a campus, freaks, powers being not used for good, and 1BR, the idea of a a young woman who wants to get out on her own and make it on her own, but ends up in something that's, that's maybe worse than anything she could have imagined. So it's influenced by so many things, but they're all events going down the line. Relationships, the aspect of Pure connections, the idea of responsibility, the idea of of broadening out, of of coming of age. All these things are brought into focus and are influenced by all these different events.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned events and and world because uh, extreme horror, horror... It, it was interesting, uh, and I, I may be off. You are far more the expert than than myself. But Please don't uh, give me too much credit. <laughs> but you know the '90s when when Wes Craven, the king of horror poked fun at himself a bit with scream and you right. got the meta horror. Then suddenly everybody was doing meta horror, which let's face it. Troma was kind of doing it before then. And, and there's been, <laughs> uh, there's been, there's been some horror films in the them, like, you, you, <laughs> you, you know, some horror films that were doing meta horror before that, but scream made it popular. And suddenly there was yeah. kind of the resurgence of the slasher. I know what you did last summer and all that, but they were the kind of the more fun, what I call popcorn horror type of films where you go in and you have fun you're like oh you know look at how creative and then 9 11 happened and the horror community had to go well how do i top that and how do you make something that's going to put people either in a uncomfortable position or whatnot and then we saw more extreme horror come out because it, I, I don't know if the community felt like it needed to after those events, but I mean, you got, you know, remakes of some some extreme horror or, you know, you got, it, there was the trend for a while of, of extreme horror. And then it's kind of tapered now again to where that's kind of looked at going, well, do we really want that <laughs> right Yeah, now? You know? you're right in what you're saying. And
1: it, it's interesting because right after 9-11, the trend of Asian horror came into mm-hmm. focus. A lot of J-HAR, you had stuff coming out of, of South Korea. You had uh, Taiwan, Philippines. I uh, Even China had their share of genre, um, uh, Tarotin uh, Extreme. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were some films, you know, and then you had the remakes. You know, one of the greatest conversations I ever had was Stephen Susco, who wrote the remake to The Grudge. Oh, okay. He was the writer, screenwriter on mm-hmm. The Grudge. Um, and when you deal with it, and then later on talking to Gore Verbinski, talking the ring with him. I mean, it was just, it's amazing to know how the Asian horror was that nice little step in, that nice mm-hmm. little uh, move into, so, so people were dealing with something that was outside the U.S., was not something that was as uh, as volatile as it was with 9-11 and 2001, and people really were seeing more moody horror, more stylized horror, horror surrounding supernatural aspects of right. it, something that was more fantastical to, the mainstream cinema rather than in your face like we saw with 9-11 with terrorism with the the world trade centers and i live i lived in northwest new jersey uh basically my entire life mark and Mm -hmm. i'll tell you something it's 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 still so potent and powerful even you know what coming up on two decades now yeah this is the 20th anniversary of it but moving it into more asia asian stylized horror with ghost stories and, and the idea of uh, even audition with the idea of uh, Mike with it. You see the poster behind mm-hmm. me with Mike and, and the aspect of relationship part. It took us away as horror fans from things that were right in front of us with all the terrible things that were going on, how we were attacked the first time since Pearl Harbor, really, we were attacked in that fashion. And it really opened up the doors to a lot of it. But again, it cycled through and you came more into the extreme horror after that. A Serbian film, it just got re-released with yeah. uh, a whole cut with Through 300 films. I mean, films <laughs> like that, you know, and, and extreme can be a very fluid uh, aspect because extreme for one person is generally different than another. Ask uh, right. Zoe Smith, Zoe Rose Smith, who is a great um, voice about extreme horror out of the UK. Her and several others are just really, really, you know, have such a palate for it. Mm-hmm. But most people don't. So you know, it's it's again horror is a very niche thing, but finding that right trend mark after traumatic events and world changing events like that was so key. And and for me, Asian horror really opened the door for me to really get into more foreign horror. Martyrs, for example. Oh yeah, I mean, Martyrs is an incredible film, but it's one of the 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 um, new French um, extreme films that really you know changed the way that we saw horror cinema and pushed us in a different direction from the reality that was in front of us.
0: Yeah, a lot more Euro horror came out around then. You had, you, yeah. you had making it not wanting to travel from turistas to- uh, No, you right,
1: hostile inside. hostel inside. yeah. I mean, and hostel's really not international art. No. UI uh, though did something smart. He took the backpacking uh, uh, trope and he took the idea of, of really, you know, going to an unfamiliar place and turned it on its heel. And then he punctuated it with some really incredible gore and shock cinema, something we had not seen for a while. And if it wasn't for Eli Roth's Hostel, I'm not sure I could have done the extreme film I did because watching that tendon cutting scene in Hostel really opened the door for me to a lot of extreme stuff. And I've watched some of the most terrible stuff that you can imagine <laughs> in my life that that is cinematic, not mm-hmm. anything other than cinematic, right. mind you um but mark if it wasn't for that i would have not been able to do that and i've seen so much stuff over the years and talked to so many extreme and underground filmmakers that it just blows my mind the catalog that's out there and how much it really has its own following and foundation that most people don't even realize is going Mm
0: -hmm. yeah well i i found that funny is that uh my news feed for months since uh they re-released uh, Serbian films, just blown up. People discovering this film, you know, where like you and I, you know, kind of veteran horror film, we're like, yeah, we've known about
1: this. Exactly, the Guinea Pig films too. Yeah, uh, Stephen Byron is, is a is a is a he's insane, but he knows what sells for business and he knows how to tap into that crowd. Mm-hmm. And films like a Serbian film, the re the recreations of the Guinea Pig films, ones like that, absolutely. I mean, it's just insane.
0: Well, And even Human Centipede, for credit. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, mean- no, You know, what? No, Mark, I'm so glad you're that up because you're exactly right. And you talk about something that is shunned, but original horror. Mm-hmm. Human Centipede is a body horror film, but there has never been anything like it. And each chapter of it has its own original flair to it. And one of the greatest things I ever had uh, on my radio program was I did a Human Centipede show. I had Alona Six, the producer, oh, nice. Tom Six's sister. <laughs> I had Lawrence Harvey. Uh, Dita Laser was a part of it. Um, Robert Wasardo was a part of it, among others. And I'll tell you something: what an interesting show! The talk, really, one of the few original horror films of the last two decades. Right. And that's why IFC Midnight and A twenty four and Neon are such great labels because they are willing to take a chance on cinema like that, whether extreme or not, but definitely quality genre storytelling
0: yeah i think you you hit the nail on the head quality genre storytelling is what they're trying to put out i always fight even if it doesn't hit that much at least usually i'll come out going wow that was great versus you know the nun which right i kind of fell asleep almost almost fell asleep during because you know i'm watching this going this is okay but i'm like it's just not but then you watch something like midsummer Right. which some people say, oh, is it a horror? Not? You watched it. I love that film, too, for what they did with it. You know, and there's other films, too, where I've come out going, it wasn't exactly my type of horror, but the stuff they do within it or the story or the, the perspective they're coming at you was different. It was original. It yeah. was somebody trying to do something different with it. It's and partnering. It's r-
1: partnering, Mark, and that's a big thing about it. I mean, if we were on a a terrestrial dial radio right now and not even a satellite radio station, we might not be able to talk about these things. But because we have podcasts, uh, blog talk radio, a lot of these different internet stations where the FCC is not so prevalent, we're able to talk about them. YouTube, for the most part, you're able to talk about them. Stuff like that, Mm -hmm. you're able to do. Same thing with film. It parallels it because you look at Ari Aster with *Midsummer*. I, you look at the aspect of Mike Flanagan with his works with Netflix.
0: Oh, yeah. These
1: are partners who want to be able to have the full vision, are willing to take chances, even if there's a bump in the road. Blumhouse is a great example of this. Jason Blum, whether you or Bloom Blum, whatever, however you pronounce his name, whatever you do, he is a mastermind of it. And he learned through the roots. Travis Stevens with Snowport Films, David Lawson with, with uh, Aaron Moorhead and Justin Benson. I mean, all these incredible creators. Have partners with them, distrib- production companies, distribution houses, uh producers who want to be able to see this incredible film, this incredible horror storytelling out there. And if it was if Ariaster was put with, let's say uh Paramount,
0: Ouch. it's
1: not gonna be the same. And you know what? I hate to say this, but I don't, I I was not a fan of the none. But so many sequels and offshoots of storytelling Mm. waters down the storytelling. And that's the problem because everyone loved The Conjuring. Everyone loved Insidious. And even the sequels were were quality. But after that, you've got to come up with more ideas. If you want to be a successful franchise and make money, Ari Aster is not worrying about making money. He's worried about telling stories. Jordan Peele has found the formula for both. Jason Blum has found the formula for both. And that is what you have to look at. So yeah, yeah, they are all part of it. And these films as part of digging in the darkness, Mark, they all come from a variety of different producers, investors, production houses, where they're willing to give them the freedom to create their vision. Dark light with the aspect of a creature movie, but underlining, it's wrapped up in a family drama. Sure. You know, Stephen mm-hmm. King's 1922, it's a property through Netflix they are allowing a, a young filmmaker like Zach Hilditch, who's going to be joining us to talk about it, to be able to adapt this property of Stephen King's. Freaks, you know, you're seeing one of the few films that deals with the darker side of superpowers. And then you have One BR, which is a completely independent film that is David Marmer's first time debut feature. So, you know, you have people who are getting behind these visions and doing more. And now Netflix, it's number one on Netflix, or was One BR? I mean, you know, now you see people going, oh, it's simple. It's got compelling conflict. It's got compelling characters. It's got, it's pushing that edge. Why can't I do it? Yeah. Why can't I do it? So it's really about the partnering when it comes to it.
0: Yeah. And that's one thing, I guess, if you want to get a positive out of uh, the COVID uh, pandemic, COVID-a-go-go, as I call it, um, (laughs) is is that... People are just, it's fun watching people, especially YouTubers. I've, I've been doing YouTube for 15 years. I don't have a huge base, but I've focused on indie stuff for at least, like I said, since John's like eight, nine years ago now, since John's uh, first, you know, second festival. And now just in the past year, it's fun watching these YouTube reviewers and such discover all these indie films because they're stuck at home. They're not going to the theater, to the press releases. So now they're scrolling through and they're like, Oh, What's this? And they're discovering things, <laughs> you know, they're discovering things like Haunt. Haunt, right. I, you know. Beckham baby. Beckham Woods and Eli Roth, man. Haunt, More than A Quiet Place. Yeah, Quiet Place. You know, a Haunt was great. I was like, this is a little different spin on the haunted house horror that we've seen. Right. You know, they, they've they given it this kind of spin. And you're getting these people now discovering indie films and reviewing indie films on their channels and these are guys with huge subscribers and more people are discovering now so i guess that's the one benefit out of it is people looking for content are now discovering these films and a lot of us are just like yeah we, we've been telling you we, been yeah
1: telling- we have been and, and you know what Mark, you, you talk about that and i agree with you that you know platforms like youtube have really opened up uh, during COVID time, a lot of people's eyes to a lot of films that they may have never seen or experienced. It's also allowed them to talk mm-hmm. to a lot of people that they may have never interacted with, whether it's networking, whether it's fandom, whether it's dealing with filmmaking and everywhere's in between. But at the same time, that stuff's out there. Yeah. And that stuff, you know, kind of gets overlooked unless it's a pandemic. There's some films that will never do. Why? Because it's such an influx of indie filmmaking. And as much as it's a blessing, it's also a curse because it's very hard to be able to establish any sort of career within it. People are fighting for jobs Mm. and there's so many crappy films that are out there. And I'm sorry, I'm not disrespecting the people that are making them because it takes a incredible, incredible thing to be able to make a film. Hell, a short, hell, a 60 second (laughs) short to be able to do it. But it's a lot of crappy horror because a lot of people are just looking to make money. Well, people can make money and get their name out there, and so it gets lost in this ocean. So, the problem is, though, Mark, if I hear it and I hear it in five different places, it becomes saturated, right? So, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I stepped a lot back from Horror Happens because after a while, the audience isn't there and they don't want to hear the conversations because they can find it other places, right. so it makes it hard for podcasts to make it hard for people to be able to sustain a radio show or a podcast or a video page and even harder for the filmmakers because they're lost in the sea. I just picked up four IFC Midnight movies at the dollar store.
0: Mm-hmm. The Wind, yeah,
1: Feral, ones like that. What Movies that five years ago were 20 bucks a pop through mm-hmm. IFC Midnight and now they're going to the dollar store. I mean, there's just the saturation. Maybe COVID will level that out a bit you know, with everything, it'll definitely change the game and how we do filmmaking, how we produce content and films forever. But maybe it'll it'll kind of level it out a bit, which is something that's not necessarily the worst thing in the world, coming from someone who programs, who does journalism, who makes now makes films, and everything in between.
0: Yeah, you, you kind of hope for that level. Because saturation, it happens with a lot of things with the internet. Because once you see a few folks who were successful through it, and no fault to everybody; they all think that they can do that. The problem is, right. once you have everybody doing that, you get lost. I mean, I I fully admit, you know, uh, my YouTube channel. Yeah, I've on 15 years. I've been doing the reviews because I I want to do them. I I do not have any hopes of ever monetizing anything because it's a passion. It, it's a passion of mine because uh, YouTube, as I call it, the review averse is got so saturated about five years in when i really started getting into it everybody discovered oh i can sit in front of my camera which is cool and talk films and get all these subscribers (laughs) you know and it's like but it gets saturated just like indie film people see it and mad props for someone trying to make any film I'm not faulting them either, but some films, I've had this discussion with, uh, indie directors. There's some films that you should keep to your friends and not necessarily put out to the show world. Grandma.
1: That's it. Just show grandma. And that's right. it. When it comes to it. Yeah. Uh,
0: until you maybe cut your teeth or, or do right. a few of these short films, like, cause some of these indie filmmakers, well, you've talked to many of them. They, they shot films for ages, you know, uh, uh, on their home camera or whatever at home. And some of those films will never see the light of day
1: Exactly. while
0: exactly. they were learning how to do things, <laughs> you know, just, yeah. be- just because you shoot it doesn't mean it has to go out there. Um, y- you know, and, and, but I think people feel that way. They're like, Oh, I shot it. I got to go out there. So people don't, you know, no, not
1: necessarily. I mean, no, not necessarily. And that's the freedom that a lot of people feel with the aspect of the internet, with all these platforms, that you can go out there. Okay, then fine. You feel you've got to show it, put it up on the YouTube channel, put it out there, make right. it part of your, your portfolio. So you can actually build something up. I mean, I'll tell you something. Uh, you know, I, at 44, I went back to school mm-hmm. and I'm doing business. I'm doing filmmaking because I wanted to go back for something I was passionate about. And my short film within the frame, I'm very proud of it. And it's a huge step up from what I did with Don't Eat at Dave's, which was a 60 second micro, no budget short. That was fun. It was schlocky. Mm-hmm. It was everything you wanted to do. It's making that film in your backyard kind of stuff. I'm proud of what I did, but if I went ahead and things had been different, I'm not necessarily sure I would have shown this film, this right. short, but there's a lot of people who are involved with it. It's more than just me. So there, as much as we say, you know, you shouldn't show your stuff. There's also people involved in being this. You have the talent, you have the crew, you have the people who are producing, the people who support you. You want to go out and show them that you're getting it out there for them. Because one thing that we forget when we're so desensitized as reviewers, as interviewers, as journalists, is that we see it all the time and we grow tired of seeing it all the time. And I hate to say, it because I've been through a divorce already in my life, When two people are not compatible anymore, more times than not, they split apart. Mm -hmm. Well, when you watch such a saturation of horror films and you see the same 10 tropes and all the same characters and the occasional twinkle of an originality, but it's the same location stuff, you become very jaded and you get very tired of it. And that's one thing I'm glad because about four years ago, Mark, I was ready to walk away from horror. I was done. And then film festivals really opened my eyes, and I went more towards that route. And even now, I'm starting to get a little, because of COVID, because of life changes, I'm not sure what I'm going to go back to with it. But I'm going to tell you something. Becoming a filmmaker has been so impactful to me because I'm learning the different side of things that I understood and I knew, but I never experienced. And I hate to be like this because I've been there for most of my career. But guess what? If we're journalists and we've never made anything, what gives us the right to criticize? Oh, That's a big thing about it. And being objective, that's fine. But Mm -hmm. being cruel is another thing entirely. And too many people have let the power mark go to their head. And occasionally, I've done it over the years, but I've remedied it really quickly (laughs) when it comes to it. So I'm at fault, just like everyone else here and there. But there are people who are just merciless. But what have you really done? If you've done it and experienced it, Then absolutely. But if you've never done filmmaking, you don't understand about all the people involved in it, what kind of what you're trying to get out there, how personal the story is for you. If you see my short within the frame and you don't like it, at least you've watched it. Right. At least you took the time out to do it, whether you like it or you don't. You know, but if you love it, that's great. You know, so you have to learn that and you have to go forward as someone on both sides of the aisle saying, listen, I understand that this is the same old, same old, but there's more to it than just it being the same old, same old. There's a, an actual human connection to it.
0: Yeah, and I, I've been involved in a number of productions. I was actually through the Film Fest. And, and this is I, why we've... Uh, so many friendships and everything came from that firm f- first Film Fest that I w- attended. Exactly. And everyone after... I, some of the folks I met there have become lifelong friends. Uh, Mr. Derek Carey, uh, behind Hole in the Wall, he... Uh, Invited me to be part of his crew for Hole in the Wall and, and Wisconsin yeah. Anthology. And yes, you know, I'm like, yeah. you're being a film fan. I'm like, wait, be on an actual film set? And I learned so much just observing and interacting with people and seeing how everybody did everything. You know, it wasn't just you had your main talent helping move equipment and that, you know, right. it made That's me. indie
1: film, baby. It's rock and roll
0: it made me feel appreciative. And I actually felt bad because I got a early screener one time from someone uh, and I watched it and it was okay an indie film, but I, I admit I was a little bit more critical about it. I wasn't cruel about it. I, in fact, I've, gotten a reputation of being too nice to films i don't know uh but except one except one film but you know i try to find the positive but i've looked back and i go okay i was a little bit harsh on that film uh you know back then because i wasn't really familiar with the indie film scene but you know right. after the film fest and meeting these folks and meeting these filmmakers it's like yeah you could shit on all these films right. to get hits Because people on the internet, let's face it, love to watch videos where people shit on things. I mean, those will get far more hits. And if you get, like me, uh, a film called The Device, an indie sci-fi film called The Device, uh, I got an early screener, reviewed it. I enjoyed it. I gave it some praise. I, I gave it some positive. First comment I got, oh, you gave this movie praise because you got to see it early. That was the reaction I got from and I'm like, oh God. I'm like, you know, okay, whatever, you know, but the, damned if you do, damned if you don't. You, you are, but I don't get the hating on. I try to find some positive things. And yeah, you know, some of them I'm like, I fully admit, this is not my film, this is not my horror film. I'm not the demograph for this specific film. So I lead with that, you know, and I think people realize that, too. Not all films have to be for everyone. I don't know if you've you've noticed that, but especially not just horror, but almost any film. Some people are critical of it. Well, I didn't understand or whatever. Like this film wasn't made for you. It leads with three (laughs) women with who are from different cultures who are, you know, fighting this invisible force or whatever. You know, 20 something white guy is not the person for that film.
1: (laughs) Yeah it's so interesting you say that because there are plenty of films over the years and I'll use um I'll use Get Out as an example mm-hmm. of the Invisible Woman it's a lot of Blumhouse stuff actually Yeah you know it's for me and I said this in fact I I got one His House mm-hmm. His House huge film on Netflix was definitely one of the most acclaimed films of 2020 and I was talking with a friend of mine and he's like oh did you see His House she, it's amazing. It's incredible. And I said, yeah, it was good. He goes, how can you say that? How can you say it was just good? I said, well, to be honest, I can't connect with what's going on there. Right. I don't know what's going on there. I said, I've never been through something like that. And to be honest with you, if anything, I connect more with Matt Smith's character than I do with anyone else because that is exactly the way I came up. Doesn't mean I'm like that. It wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. And people have a hard time. And then I said, but you, what about you? He goes, well, okay, I'm a minority. I said, yeah, I understand. I said, well, there you go. I said, you understand it more. It's more favorable to you than it is to me for different reasons. Get Out. Get Out's another one. One of the biggest things for me is hype. Mm-hmm. Mark, I hate hyped films. Save here. And when I went to see Get Out and when I saw a whole bunch of, of these hyped films, I generally walk away. You're next. Mm -hmm. Hate it. You're next. Hate it. You're next. But after seeing it so many times, I've come to love that film. Mm -hmm. But many films, I just hype kills it. If I can't make a connection with it, I can't find something to invest. If I'm if I go in there with such expectations, it kills me. But on the same uh, on the same uh, shoe, Jordan Peele's Us, loved it. Mm -hmm. Loved it. Why? Because I saw Get Out enough. I came to appreciate his work. I listened to his commentaries and anyone out there, listen to film commentaries. Yes. It is an education in itself. Buy the Blu-rays for the film commentaries. Just don't get on BOD, buy the tangible media for film commentaries at the very least and the behind the scenes. It's so worth it. But I came to appreciate Jordan Peele's us way more and get out more after going through the process of getting to know Jordan Peele as a filmmaker so guess what not every film is meant for everybody all right but if you question it you shouldn't be shit on about it Mm -hmm. and that's something that people nowadays they're all telephone tough guys most of them are telephone tough guys backseat drivers these are people who you know really don't understand and just want to react like you said there's a whole culture of people who want to react and that's something that that really is for over the years mark it's one of the reasons why I did Horror Happens Radio for myself. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do those interviews for myself, have those conversations for myself. That's why most of them are long form. I don't want a short sound bite unless I have no other choice. I want a long form conversation with these people to understand and scratch the surface of what they're doing, whether I like their film or they, I don't, whether I understand it or I do, and so on and so forth. But that's something you're exactly right about and if you're too nice well then you're you're a homer if you're not nice enough then you know you you don't like anything and you you have an issue with everything there's no happy medium with most of the people yeah. and i have so much respect for the journalistic community out there and when you have people like that who again haven't done anything and are critical they're lost i mean they overtake the people who have done the stuff yeah. and are critical and obje- and give career, uh, creative criticism to it you know and I will be the first one to tell you. I will not. I've done it for a long time, and I I'm not even close to knowing it at all. Not even close,
0: to no. I, I I lie. I always tell people I know nothing, you know. <laughs> and uh, I don't want to go too long, but I I I just wanted okay. to, I want to share um, inter- sure. a, a story that I've got here that I think it kind of opened my eyes even more so than the film festival. Uh sure. Sure. And Andy Copp, uh sure did uh, independent filmmaker he passed away unfortunately uh, too too soon uh i one of the first reviews i did of his was mutilation man it was literally a big lots pickup for 50 cents <laughs> it was his indie film just just wild okay i was not familiar at this is one of those just random blind buys i watched it i'm like wow and when I reviewed it, I I fully admitted. I I, I came to one point and said, look, I'm gonna admit, I don't get this film. This right. is this is just all this stuff happening. There's a guy in a placenta. There's, I, I <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm like, I came out and I, was, I I was a bit critical on it. Right. Well, like three or six months later, I get an email from Andrew Cobb, and he goes. Hey, can I include your review on the VHS right. limited release of Mutilation Man? And I was thinking back to the review, and I'm like, really? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know. I'm like, um, sure. I'm like, I, I, I told him, I'm like, I, it, I, and he goes, Yeah, I don't. Was it the most glowing review? He goes, But you were honest, and and I want to include yeah, it on. God. And I, my mind was just. Blown, and I think that that's where it really opened up for me and gave me some perspective on the indie film maker. Not only that, but he sent me like a copy of his library exactly the VHS, and I've got some back here like three or four DVDs, and some that are just DVD Rs that he burned. And I, it, but he sent me this package full, and I'm like, you know, my mind was just blown by that, and it put yeah. things in perspective for me. And it's how it, it actually I changed the way I did some reviews because of that, because I right. realized you learned from it. yeah Absolutely. And it,
1: it's educational. And you know what, Mark, when you look at it, 95 percent of filmmakers and that's going off of, of professional experiences with interviews. Mm. That's a good that's a good percentage based on my experiences. They want you to watch the films, whether you love them or you hate them. They want the feedback. They want the conversation. They want to be able to talk about it. And that's why I, I decided to do Digging Into the Darkness with Moncore Film because all these filmmakers, and I've talked to David Marmer several times. Mm-hmm. I, my interview with him and the cast and crew from 1BR is on the Blu-ray DVD. Nice. I did an 11-person interview at Fantasia, 45 minutes, and it was awesome. But Zach uh, Lepofsky, um, Adam Stein, Adrian Biddle, Zach hilditch Padre Reynolds, they love to talk about their works. Zach loves to talk about these final hours, his 2013 uh, a, apocalyptic you know, wave film out of Australia. And Adrian is one of the most talented and most well-respected indie producers. And the hardest conversation, I'll say it again and again, is a producer. Because a producer has so many hats that he or she wears that there's no possible way, even with a project focus, that you could ever understand what they do and ask Mm -hmm. the appropriate questions. That's why producers are the most amazing people to learn from as well. But you look at all these filmmakers and whether you love it or hate it, you want to learn from it. Mm -hmm. And Mark, you're exactly right. You learned how to be a better reviewer. You learn different things. I learned so much over the years going from radio to writing for websites to writing for horror hound to going ahead and doing moderating panels and making films now and, and getting educated even one semester, you learn so much all the time. And you should always be open to it, just like the filmmakers are and the creators are. They want to hear what you have because you might have something they did not thought about. And they might want to put it on their thing because they feel really proud of the review. It might be an entertaining review, but it's an honest review. right And that's something that we see with your story, but it's more truer than you could believe when you talk to a lot of these filmmakers, especially in the genre. But even after that, everyone forgets, they put so many filmmakers on a pedestal. I got news for you, man. <laughs> Sean Cunningham made Friday the 13th because it was, a, 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 it was an answer to Halloween. True. And it was meant to be a moneymaker. Halloween was made because John Carpenter and Deborah Hill came together and just said, make a slasher film. Yeah, I mean, all these people, we tend to forget all the origins, origins that they come from. We forget that Wes Craven, his favorite, one of his favorite films, what he wanted to do, he never wanted to direct horror. He wanted to direct a movie that was non-horror. That's why I always say, what's your favorite Wes Craven film? Music of my heart. (laughs) It's the best. It's the best. But you're right in what you're saying. I'm glad you bring up that story for the people listening because it's so true.
0: Yeah. and I've gotten that experience through the years as well. Uh, Given a review I think uh, I forgot which one it was. It was like uh, something babes uh, killer s- slaughter babes in zombie town or killers in zombie town. I forgot what the title of it was, but I reviewed. Classic. It's baby. a classic. I reviewed it and I made it. You know, I I gave positives, but I also made commentary about. You know, I really wish they would have had a tripod for this. You know, scene wow. and the scene in the bar seemed to be really chopped up. I get an email like a week later from the filmmakers and they explained, you're like, Hey, we liked your review. Even if you were critical. And they're like, here's why. And they said, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's like, we didn't have a tripod. We were supposed to have a tripod that exactly. night, but the rental company, he said, didn't have tripods for us. And then he said, everything was rushed into bar because we only had one night. We were supposed to have two, but the owner exactly. decided.
1: exactly." <laughs> and, and you know, what's great about that. And, you don't really realize that until you get behind the camera on all the things that can go wrong. You're just right. seeing the finished product of what's out there. But I'll tell you something. From professional experience, I had six-plus hours with the lead actress in my short. That was it. In a COVID time where we had to stay six feet apart from each other, had to wear masks, had to wear face shields. The stories that will that come out of my short film, I mean, imagine what the stories are of the masters. Imagine the ones who have made these feature films, no matter how, how low budget and schlocky or, or how amazing it is. Think about Ari Aster. I mean, putting together Midsommar. I mean, imagine the stories that he has about making horror in the daylight, just a technical aspect. He's probably forgotten more than we will ever know. <laughs> yeah. End of story, you know? Yeah. And he's the humble guy you'll ever meet. He's so unassuming and so friendly and so nice, but yet he is so incredibly brilliant. And it took him many short films to hone his craft. And I guarantee the stories are amazing and are just as different, but as amazing as someone like a James Balsamo who has made so many films over the years and continues to be the modern day hybrid of Lloyd Kaufman and Roger Corman. <laughs> nice.
0: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Michael Flanagan. He's become one of my favorite new He's horror so great. horror directors. And I didn't discover him until Derek introduced me to Absentia. He's like, have you seen I... Absentia? And I'm like, no. He's like, dude, you've yeah. got to watch. And I watch it. And I'm like, wow, I was blown away. And I followed all of his stuff. And some of his stuff hasn't been as solid as other, but it was still good. And then right. you find out, oh, guess what? He's directing Dr. Sleep. It's like you know two years ago and i always laugh at all these indie horror film directors for as much as and and we'll wrap it up here a little bit i want to go too long hold it hold it too long but um all these indie horror filmmakers that end up getting picked for these big superhero films or these big budget films and you know people are like oh yeah And, and, and you're like sitting there going You've been crapping on horror forever, but you think Peter Jackson is the best thing since sliced bread for doing Lord of the Rings. Have you seen his film Dead Alive? (laughs) Yeah, exactly,
1: exactly. And people don't realize that when it comes to horror directors. I mean, when you go into horror, it's such a resourceful Mm -hmm. subgenre of film, of cinema. And so a lot of these filmmakers coming in are ones where they can take, um, they can take, you know chicken shit and make it into chicken salad you know and they have everything behind them. the marvel movies are, are a huge huge platform for a lot of them and i want to give hats off to uh aaron moorhead and justin benson who just got on to the moon Knight tv series from marvel and they're if you ever want to talk to some of the most friendly intelligent these are film artists not mm-hmm. filmmakers and they have a, a simpatico with each other. They don't fight on set. They, they have a rapport. They are so DIY and they they continue to evolve their craft. But I'll tell you something. You look at filmmakers like this, Mark, and you just sit back and you say, how could you, if you just paid attention to their work, look at James Gunn. Everyone yeah. loves Guardians of the Galaxy. Trauma director. <laughs> trauma I'm and like Juliet. Trauma director. But he's obviously, he is a talent and he's learned to hone his craft slither moving forward to that you're dealing with brightburn as a producer you're dealing with marvel i mean you're dealing with so many different things when it comes to them and these horror filmmakers if you just pay attention to work and see beyond the stigma see beyond the the, you know having that bias right ahead you see art and that's Mm -hmm. something i'm glad in this decade with and as much as i'm not a fan of the walking dead the walking dead really did open up a lot of doorways for more people to come in and accepting horror and willing to try things right and why many of them are just walking dead fans there's still a percentage that has jumped over and they've opened their eyes to different films within the genre and a lot of them are by filmmakers from their favorite comic book movie you know so yeah you're exactly right in what you say
0: yeah i mean sam raimi when i first heard in all honesty when i heard sam raimi was directing a spider-man film i was like really (laughs) you know back in the day i was like oh okay sure and you know and then you watch it and then he ended up making you know the trilogy and spider-man 2 is still considered by many as one of the best superhero films made in
1: dr octopus alfred molina's dr octopus is one of the great uh villains and i'm glad i I, from what i've heard he's only in for a you know a handful of minutes right in uh, in the spider-verse film the the next spider-man movie but what you know sam raimi was smart enough and crafty enough to be able to take what was around him and be innovative and try techniques that haven't been used before Mm -hmm. and he applied it to comic books and it's been absolutely incredible and you have such an appreciation for someone who started with having a plank of uh putting a camera on a plank and pulling it through the woods and now you see him where he's got fights with dr octopus i mean he is really a, a renaissance man of such talent and that's something that i love about how a lot of these horror and sci-fi filmmakers are slowly adjusting or being brought on by marvel they're so smart in what they do because they're able to build a lineage with them right so let's just hope marvel doesn't mess it up like they did almost with james gunn that's (laughs) the only thing so
0: yeah hopefully and uh i mean it it goes all the way back to tim burton tim you, you know tim burton did batman He's, this yep. is the guy who did Beetlejuice, you know, he, he right. did Pee Wee's Big Adventure for Crying Out Loud, and he's done, ba- he did Batman, and that's my favorite superhero. Film. I love Burton's Batman. But,
1: um, oh, well, hold on a second now, hold on yeah. a second. This is one thing that, again, it takes the right person to bring the story to life. Right. And I brought up before that with his house. I don't, I would never take on a story like that. In I'm not saying that I'm I'm any sort of a filmmaker, but I wouldn't even think about a story like that because i couldn't connect to it, i couldn't understand it if joel everyone thought joel schumacher was going to be a great director for batman and he ended up making a cartoonish adam west 1960s style bat nipples movie okay <laughs> all right but tim burton made a film that fit what he was doing right and what the producers and what dc wanted to go forward and i think spider-man's a great example of that with sam raimi mm-hmm. it went evil dead to evil dead 2 to army of Darkness. Three different films, three different decades, and really three different styles of filmmaking. So he understood how to hone the story. And that's something that Tim Burton, you're right, you never would figure it, but it's a movie that you understand. Mm -hmm. That's why when when he did um, Willy Wonka, were we shocked at all by what he did with Willy Wonka? Not even close because it fits. And if it's not one of the things I firmly believe in, Mark, is if you, not everyone can direct every movie, I'm sorry. You got to fit what you're doing. And now I've gotten a lot of criticism with that. But guess what? I can direct a movie. Uh, I can do a documentary about the swing movement of the late 90s, early 2000s, because I was involved in it in a lot of different forms for almost 15 years. And why I was not ingrained as much as others, I have knowledge of it. If you want me to do a film about the new wave jazz movement with Chick Corea, I could not do it, <laughs> just like I couldn't sit here and create a trauma movie because I it's not my favorite genre I couldn't understand how they could do that even with my short short film I don't understand I do it so I'm not the right person for that so you got to have a match when it comes to project and film and creator if not a lot of times it's not going to work and that's why we've seen with Freddy Bruce's Jason Ronnie Yu was not even yet. a fan of horror he came on there because he was the director that they chose it turned out to be a good movie it was fun but could have been something more absolutely
0: right and yeah, I, I've seen so many examples, not just in horror, but in all kinds of films to where you're just like, they got that director and you can tell right. that that director just was not comfortable with the material or hadn't, you know, hand paid attention to if it's based off of a franchise. They haven't seen any of the other films and it comes off as that a lot of times. So, uh, you're right. You know, if I may add one more thing. Yeah, go ahead. Digging into the darkness. Yeah. You
1: know, a lot of filmmakers in our lineup Padre Reynolds' Dark Light is definitely, for him, it's a passion project. Mm -hmm. Um, For Zach Hilditch with Stephen King's 1922, he came on uh, for the work he's done previously, and he was a fan of Stephen King. But he came on, Netflix brought him on. For Adrienne Biddle, she's been ingrained in that indie uh, horror genre of films, those thrillers, those dark dramas, for a long time. For For Zach and for Adam, they were very much fans of of horror and sci-fi but they really didn't know a whole lot about comic books but yet they were able to adapt it but the one that sticks out the most and he's our closing one on march 21st for digging into darkness is david marmer you could take one br and the story and the characters and put it anywhere but you know what makes it uniquely his is because it's his experiences a lot of them in los angeles and that's something that it matches with him as not only the debut project but a story he could tell because he has a personal aspect invested in on levels that the rest of the filmmakers don't as a part of this lineup and they do a great job we're very happy to have them uh involved with everything but for david marmer especially it's something that he wrote personal his own angst his own fears the idea of what influences living in los angeles it really is incredible. And that's why a filmmaker like Lucky McKee is so great oh, yeah. because he writes films that he is ingrained in. He partnered with Jack Ketchum for so many years and he understands that dark side of humanity. And you have to again find a match. And David being part of the digging in the darkness, uh digging into the darkness lineup as well as the others, absolutely you want to find those personal connections and you will. Uh, if you come join us
0: awesome well folks check it out and i guess i got one more question this is just so fun i could talk forever Uh, i just love horror um uh what's one of your favorite horror films
1: i you know what i'm glad you asked because for me it's kind of fluid um i am really a fan of a lot of different films Mm -hmm. because as it goes through the time my favorites have kind of changed because i've grown as a person But I'll tell you what, if I had to lock down one, uh, 28 days later, nice. it's bar none my favorite to watch because never never have I seen a film. And there's always a catalyst to why the horror happens. Mm -hmm. And when you look at a film like this, this is one of the few films where Danny Boyle, who's not really a horror director, he's done Shallow Grave. He's done more thrillers and dark right. dramas than he's done horror. And a lot of people don't consider Twenty Eight Days Later to really be a horror film, to be honest with you. But I do. I consider it. But his catalyst of having the, the PETA people come in and try and save the animals, try and save the monkeys, and the guy sitting there who you, I mean, his performance is incredible. The tech is terrified. And anyone in their right mind can see that there's something wrong. And he's telling you, don't do it. And what do they do? They open up the cage. And it's funny because we see an elf when he goes to get the hug from the raccoon and the raccoon jumps on his face. (laughs) Well, in a very scary way, in 28 Days Later, it's the same exact thing where that monkey stops, looks, and then charges. And it's such an incredible scene of timing, reaction, that emotional build. And it goes throughout the movie, Mark, with 28 Mm -hmm. Days Later. I listened to the commentary with Danny Boyle and having mere hours to clear out London, to hold back traffic, to shoot that scene with Killian Murphy walking through and making it so vacant. It's terrifying. And then to live through COVID yeah. and to drive through New York City and see how <laughs> vacant it is. I mean, it's it's really one of the most reflective films of the last 30 years. And it is such an incredibly terrifying film because at any second you can become infected. You can become infected with rage and we all have rage. We all lose control. And then when you have a father and daughter and he's infected and he's telling her to stay back, stay away. And then all of a sudden you just start shaking. It's so visceral and so emotional and so powerful. And what Danny Boyle does in the gritty feel of that, that movie and the soundtrack and the way his choices across the board and how he's able to cap those, those performances, There's not a better movie than 28 Days Later, in my opinion. And I love horror across the board. But 28 Days Later is absolutely incredible. And that is one real quick thing. I'll tie it up with Digging Into the Darkness. They're also all films that I really enjoyed. It's not just throwing out films for film sake. I know I've talked with all the filmmakers. Mm -hmm. But they're all films I've really enjoyed for different reasons. And that's why... With Digging Into the Darkness, it's both educational and entertaining, but it's also something that's connected to me. I'm sitting there moderating, but you as fans are going to be going on that journey for that hour with me, talking with the filmmakers, with the producers, and being a part of these films, being a, a, a chapter in their history through Montclair Film. Again, monclairfilm.org. you can go and register. And it's, it's 75 bucks for five classes And you have to buy the entire package, but it's so worth it because you will not find more of a candid conversation with filmmakers, people that you've always wanted to talk to and some that you didn't even know you wanted to talk to um, and and find out filmmaking, fandom, influences, everything in between. And that is why I love doing this with Montclair Film. And I thank everyone involved with it. And those already who have registered and those who are watching here uh, on the show tonight, is that this is something that is not around a whole lot. Mm -hmm. It's something on a virtual setting that we want to grow and we want it to be part of. We want to support Montclair Film and the great theater they have because they're they're connected to Montclair Film Festival. And if people don't support it, it ain't going to be around just like independent film. And all these films went through their challenges and their funding crises, no doubt. (laughs) So it's definitely something to be a part of and just like 28 Days Later, there's a love and passion I have for all these films. Not as much as 20 Days Later, but <laughs> definitely there with what we're bringing to you for this first season.
0: Fantastic. Well, everyone, I Thank want... you. you're welcome. Thank you. Uh, yeah, everyone, check it out. And, you know, I think the most inspiring thing, and I hope and I'm sure it's going to come out of it, is it's always fun to introduce a new fan to horror, right. That, that that for me is always – it's like because suddenly they want to consume and they're yeah. looking for recommendations. You're like, no, here, here. Uh, I keep wanting to wrap it up, but my, my son – quick story. My, my son, hey, go ahead. Um, my oldest, didn't like horror forever. And my right. listeners have, have kind of heard this story before. He didn't like horror forever. And then one day, a switch flipped for him. He was on Rabbit at the time. A guy he played games with on Steam had a rabbit channel that played horror. And so wow. he he watched horror films. And suddenly, he's talking to me about horror films. And he's, <laughs> he's seeing stuff that I haven't seen. It's a seen. family affair. Yeah. You're right.
1: Yeah. It, you, know, I, you know, Mark, it's what you said right there, though. I don't mean to interrupt you, but it's exactly no, what that's you fine. said right there. It's the idea... Not only the fact of new fans to the genre, because I'll be honest with you, this is something where a lot of fans who are fans already will jump in and join in and give more exposure. But it'll be about people who are looking at films and film genres within horror, subgenres they've never inv- invested the time in. They've had a Netflix channel. Most people have a Netflix channel. How many films do you actually watch on there? And that's something that's something with this, having these five films. You're going to be able to watch them before and then come in ready to talk with the people, the the creators about it. And you're going to discover new subgenres of horror and new films. You never even do it. And you're already fans of horror, but there's going to be some who are not fans who are going to come in and say, Oh my God, that creature in dark light. That was so cool. How did they do that? Can I do that when I grow up? Who's Ray Harryhausen? Oh my God. uh, He did stuff like that too. Oh my God. Stephen King. I got to start reading his books. What a woman producer. you, You mean, A woman can have this kind of influence on the genre of horror and so many other questions and inspirations and epiphanies, Mark. And I'm so glad you say that about your kid because it's amazing now all the resources. We are in the most resource-rich era in our entire world. And yes, I was not the most complimentary a little while ago about YouTube channels, but you know what though? It does open it up to a new generation and the ones that haven't seen it. And that is so important.
0: Yeah, I shed, a, I shed a tear. We were going to one of the superhero films and they had the big poster for uh, Halloween for 20, uh, 2018. Right. And when my oldest said, hey, dad, can can you take me to that? I nearly was like, <laughs> 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 they grow up so quick. It's a rite of passage.
1: <laughs> I'll tell you what, it's a rite of passage. And Mark, we come from a generation where, yeah, there was horror in the theaters, but it was it was those movies. You brought the VHS tapes home and you watched them with your friends when your parents went to sleep or they were out, stuff like that. And if I, I would have never watched Faces of Death if it wasn't for that. Oh, yeah. I never will watch Friday the 13th or Halloween or Evil Dead and then walk my friends home and thought that vines were going to come out of the woods to get me. <laughs> you know, I never will look at monkey brains the same ever again <laughs> from it. And that's something for us, it really is whether your your family is ingrained in it or not, because my family doesn't really get a whole lot into what I do. Mm-hmm. I'm so thankful that my partner and girlfriend, uh, Susan Decker, who's the composer on my short, she loves her And she's from Ecuador. And she's loved her ever since she's come to the States and even before for two decades now. And her and I match really, really well when it comes to that. But there's so many people in my life who don't. But when they find the film like Silence of the Lambs or 28 Days Later or Showgirls, you know, it's, it's something that you look at where they go, you know what, that's really incredible. And that was really smart. And I really enjoyed it. Or I enjoyed the visual aspect. Scream, going back to Scream. How many people did it open up that Dawson's Creek generation, that YA generation with I Know What You Did Last Summer with Scream and Urban Legend and all those films? It opened up that entire generation. The people who were never a fan of it, but grew up with those novels and didn't even realize what horror could be.
0: And Final Destination too, which makes you, oh, um, which makes you question ever driving behind a log truck Dude, ever again.
1: I've done that before. Are you kidding me? I firmly believe death has a plan. Honestly, because there's been times where things have gotten close for me over the years. That story from another time. But you, you know what? Final Destination is a great example of that because it's a film that that redefines a trope of death yeah and it's really smart and again it's worth investing and it's smart we're not treating you like an idiot we want you to find a way to invest in what you're watching and jeffrey jeffrey reddick i mean incredible Mm. him creating it but the people behind him allowing it to happen are the heroes just as much
0: absolutely well uh, thank you very much jay i hope i hope we get a time again to talk because uh you will plenty more to talk about but i think we'll wrap it up for tonight so uh digging into the darkness you mentioned it montclair.org is it montclairfilm.org yep it
1: kicks off february 21st five sundays in a row and come join us register at their website
0: fantastic and outside of that where else can uh they find your stuff at or keep up with you
1: well, I love. I kind of in the last few years went by a strange man in the film land. Uh, I really think it fits really, really well for what I do and how I've evolved and changed uh, in this in this uh, dysfunctional family that we have. And you know, you can find me with scratching the surface and horror happens radio on SoundCloud. You can find me on all social medias under J Y K Y, and not the singer from Jamiroquai. Okay, <laughs> so he's the same exact. That's that, not where that name came from, I guarantee. But but uh, you can find me in all of them in SoundCloud primarily and look me up there. And I've got my new short, hopefully playing festivals virtually in 2021 within the frame. And there's pages on Facebook for digging in the darkness for within the frame. You can just find me under JK Horror Happens.
0: Fantastic. And we'll have links on the webpage for awesome. this episode Thank on uh, specialmarkproductions.com. And yes, folks, uh, check out indie horror. Check out Digging into the darkness. Uh, I appreciate your time, Jay. I appreciate and, you, my friend. And uh, yeah, we'll just say goodnight. And we both
1: uh, we both love John Pata. Let's just put that out. <laughs> it.
0: just, yeah, it's we, a deep uh, love for that how, man. How could you not love uh, John Patta at all? I mean, uh, the guy just, true, yeah. you know, he's <laughs>
1: amazing. And if you've never seen Pity, oh. watch Pity. One of the, about, what is it? About 14 minutes of the most intense, intense, uh, within a car that you've ever seen in your life amazing performance incredible sound design absolutely amazing and hats off to Jill Six and John Potter and Eric Havens oh yeah and, and everyone Robert Patrick Stern and, and Sarah and all for the stylists. the feature is is killing it on the festival uh. circuit going to release an congratulations to all of them I was there when Jill uh at the Ethereum film night won for audience and for um uh, uh, jury award. Uh, back four, five, six years ago. That's a long time ago.
0: For the and short, it, yeah.
1: For the short, and yeah. I'll tell you what. So proud of what she's done, and congratulations to everyone involved. In that it's well deserved, and John is a big reason because his editing is awesome
0: <laughs> it is awesome i've got the uh, limited dead and weight the jar too
1: i, I forgot the jar it was amazing
0: oh I yeah remember. i i i got a chance to interview jill six when uh she showed it at the uh horror film festival the short That's film awesome. and then um i was at the dead weight world premiere uh yeah. at the time community theater oh. and we've got the best interview i swear ever we interviewed john in the men's bathroom I- <laughs>
1: that's not that's not a surprise whatsoever that you you know he's he's very versatile he can go anywhere anytime and just start talking that personality and charisma pops out and they are just amazing people and I'm just, I'm so proud yeah. to see what they've done. Oh, and uh, you know what? I look forward to listening to that, Mark. <laughs> well, We washed our hands afterwards.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so there you have it, folks. Thank you so much, Jay. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. And uh, yeah, we, now we will uh, call it a night.
1: Uh, hey, pleasant nightmares, folks.